I'm Dan Pfefferman. And I'm Benny Shoulder, and welcome to Juanced. The show that challenges popular conceptions, thinks critically, examines independently, and most of all, seeks nuance. Each episode features a different guest. We'll dive into politics, foreign affairs, religion, science, tech, culture, and more connected to Israel and the Jewish world. No talking points, no script, no agenda. Just a deeper, nuanced understanding of the world around us. Join us as we explore, think, discuss, and perhaps most of all, listen. Juanced. You know, like nuanced, but with a J? Yeah, they get it. Dude, let's just start. All right, everybody. Greetings out there in podcast land, and welcome to Juanced, the show that brings you a nuanced exploration of Israel, the Jewish world, and beyond. I'm Betty Shoulder. I'm the Jewish world. Damn it. I'm Dan Pfefferman. How you doing? Welcome to another great episode of the show. Awesome. Before we get going, I'd like to give a shout out to anybody who's watching us at the moment on Facebook Live. Thanks for tuning in. And for those of you listening later on on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and all of the other podcast platforms, know that there is a live video version of the podcast, which you can check out weekly. It's available on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Julian's Podcast. Check it out. We record or watch all of our episodes on YouTube channel, as well as our website, www.juance.com. Dan, where can they follow us on social media? You should possibly recommend it. Follow us on Twitter. We are at Juance Podcast for all the latest updates. Instagram and, uh, and of course, on Facebook. And uh, follow us, subscribe Leave reviews on all the major podcast platforms. But only good reviews, not not crappy like one star. I'll accept a mediocre review. Um, you the, would. The major podcast platforms, the mediocre ones, and even a couple of the lesser known ones. Um, and it, it's been said, it's been said, there are rumors that uh, the reviews help. They make a difference. So we appreciate it. Anyways, Dan and I are both really excited to be in the studio today with our guest, Joel Haber. Listeners beware, today's show is virtually guaranteed to leave you super hungry. New Jersey native and former screenwriter Joel Haber made Aliyah to Israel in 2009. Looking to leave his former profession behind in the old country, Joel did what anyone would do and became a licensed tour guide and soon found himself escorting travelers from all over the world, discovering and uncovering the wonderful and beautiful thing that is the land and the people of Israel. He also grew up in a modern Orthodox home with a mother who was a great home cook and a cosmopolitan one at that, and through her kitchen ate many traditional foods of his Ashkenazi Jewish background, as well as dishes from other segments of Jewish culture, developing a diverse plate, palate, excuse me there. And a plate. And a plate. Palette Joel's taste plate. buds found that the, their perfect habitat when he got to Israel, and he quickly was able to enjoy the super diverse variety that is today's modern Israeli culinary scene, and you can think of everything from pickled herring to kugel to malawach, hachapuri, kuba, and gondi. Combining his passion for tours with his love of food, he is renowned for his incredible, one-of-a-kind tasting tours of Jerusalem's iconic Machane Yehuda market, where he lives, and giving lectures on what our classic Jewish dishes say about our culture. He is the author of the popular Jewish food history blog, The Taste of Jewish Culture, and is currently working on a book, Chulent, How an Unassuming Sabbath Stew Traveled the World, Changed Its Look, and Came to Embody the Jewish Experience. That's a good intro, Joel. How you doing, you. man? I'm doing great. How you doing? I like it. Thank you. Living the dream. Yeah. So uh, to see you guys in person. Seriously, we've had way too many Zoom episodes. I'm trying <laughs> so not to sneeze is. now. I promise it's not COVID. I'm trying not to sneeze. <laughs> if you're if you're sick these days, it's like the first thing you have to do is is okay. 
it's it's probably COVID. It's <laughs> my favorite thing is like like especially from the beginning, people would, would cough and be like, "Oh, it's not COVID. Don't worry." I'm like, "How do you know?" <laughs> it's true. It's true. How do we, I would we, know. We had COVID here in the house. We had a, a spate. We had a an outbreak. An outbreak, and um, and I I'm paranoidly tested myself sometimes every day, sometimes every other day, uh, as much as it's worth. As we will now be doing after the show. <laughs> <do you? laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Because that's how fast it can. Uh, Apparently. show results yeah. <laughs> anyways uh we're, we're we're happy to be here we're doing a daytime taping of the show so uh it's it's a little bit different than than usual it's uh, kind of like soap operas versus you know right Ooh, i like that yeah right is this days of our lives uh, <laughs> young, version uh young young and the restless please <laughs> yeah young and the restless because there's so much construction always constantly in 90217 <laughs> exactly <laughs> something like that oh man so there's a lot of stuff that and a lot of ground that we could cover uh, with you with you here, but but you know I'm thinking to myself, what is Jewish food? Well, I, I would say that's obviously the starting point for any discussion, right? And I could be Jewish and answer your question with a question, like <laughs> what do you think Jewish food is? What do you think? Um, no, I mean one of the things I have to say, like before I even get into like my definitions of it, is that nobody asks this about other things. No, nobody ever questions what. Italian food is or Chinese food right and nobody places on those cuisines any sort of requirement like it has to be something that's indigenous to that community or that only they eat right Kinda nobody does, no? no nobody cares that pasta is not originally Italian nobody will deny that pasta is an Italian food tomatoes come from the new world pasta originated in the Far East and came through the Arab world long before it got to Italy but nobody says that pasta that true? Yeah. yeah for sure but nobody says okay. it's not Italian nobody questions whether quiche or ratatouille are French when they have precursors in Spain and Germany and, and England. It's, so why do they require it of Jewish food? Right. So I, I get past all that. I don't think that's, that's even a relevant thing. That being said, I will say that there are certainly foods that are uniquely Jewish and exclusively Jewish. Like the, most, the most obvious one. Matzah. Exactly. Matzah is directly commanded to us in the Torah. So it grows directly out of our history and out of our religion. It is something that pretty much only we eat because who else would want to eat it, <laughs> right? And, and, and frankly, uh, it, it is therefore really both unique to us and uh, grew out of our religion. Now, maybe we were not the first in the world ever to eat unleavened bread, but that still makes it a, a uniquely Jewish food. We took, we took it to another level. Well, we, we made it around. <laughs> when everybody else stopped, we kept doing it. And I would also say that going with that is that if matzah is is a genuinely Jewish food, all of the things made from it, so matzah balls and matzah brai, which is awesome, even if matzah is not. Oh, awesome. Right? So yes. those are things that would also be Jewish. But And and I would argue that chont meets that same category. And when I say chont, I don't just mean chont. I mean all of the Shabbat stews uh, from every different Jewish community, meaning foods that are prepared on Friday, cooked through the night on Friday night until... Uh, Saturday lunchtime to be eaten, and there's many varieties. My uh, argument in the book that I'm working on is that they are all not different dishes, but rather variations on the same dish. And so I would say that is also. But beyond that, whether you go with the strictest definition uh, of, of Jewish food like that, something that is uniquely and um, genuinely Jewish, or if it's other things also, but even with the strictest you have, even beyond that, though, there are other things that I think would qualify a food as a Jewish food. So for example, there are numerous foods from around the world that were not unique to us, but 
our version is different. We've changed it for kashrut, for example, or things of that nature. So if you have a dish that others have mixing milk and meat, and we go <clears throat> and we replace the milk with, let's say, coconut milk, like many of the Indian dishes that are right. from the Indian Jewish community. So that's a Jewish version of that dish, and it is a distinct, different version of the food. So that would be the Jewish version of it. And that's recognized by non-Jews as well. When you look at foods from around the world, there are tens of different foods that in whatever language of the local culture are called Jewish style this. You probably may have heard of a famous Roman Italian uh, food called carciofi alla judia, which yeah. means Jewish style artichokes. So if they're saying it's Jewish, who are we to say it's not, right? Correct. And in America, by the way, you have the same thing and you don't even think about it. There's at least two things I can think of that are identified that way. You have Jewish rye bread and you have kosher dill pickles. All pickles are kosher, right? But they're right. identifying that style as the Jewish style. So that would be a second level, I think, that would identify Jewish foods as, uh, as Jewish foods. Or kosher salt, even. <laughs> so that's a different one. That's because it's used for koshering it's meat. It should be called koshering salt. It right. should be, yeah. But if you go to a kitchen, any kitchen, anywhere right. in America, yeah. you say, you know, I need something to, to season the steak, put kosher salt exactly. in the steak. Right. Exactly. They don't know what they're saying, perhaps, no, even. They don't. That's what they're, they're calling it. Right, but there it's not an example of they're saying this salt is kosher as opposed to that one. They're saying it because, yeah, so that's another example. And I'd say the third category, and this is where you get a little bit of leeway, but I think that if other people... I like just associate a food with Jewish people then that makes it a Jewish food. Like for example, um, many of the deli foods in America, many of the deli meats, not all of them, but many of them weren't uniquely Jewish, but because it was the Jews who brought it to America, who pervaded it there and who everybody else said, Oh, that we can go to a Jewish restaurant to get it. It became a Jewish food for that reason. So that's my opinion of what makes a Jewish food a Jewish food. But you read any book on Jewish food and, and in the introduction or something, they're going to address this question and everyone will have a slightly different answer for it. Obviously foods that are, also sorry, foods that are connected with uh, Jewish holidays and Jewish uh, observance and, and Sabbath, those are also going to be Jewish foods. It's like, it's like brisket. You know, in the Jewish world, everyone's like, oh, brisket's Jewish. Uh, by the way, that's sort of such an American thing because here in Israel, they don't even know what that is. But... It took me like the longest time to realize that, like, hey, like the American South loves brisket too, and Texas especially right. Texas barbecue. And that's not that's not Jewish at all. You yeah. Know? So you look at like um, uh, one of the things that you know, obviously, brisket began as a uh, you know we ate it because it was uh, a cut yeah. that we could have, uh, meaning it was Ashkenazim only from the front half of the animal and is from there, and because it was an inexpensive cut, right? Right, and we figured out how to make it taste good, but. Now you think about that, and I say it's an inexpensive cut. You're like, what are you talking about? We go to the butcher, it costs like 20 bucks Right, it went, full, it went full circle. Here it's still a cheap cut. Right. It's, it's like the biggest secret <laughs> of living in Israel. <laughs> but it was also because not only us, but the non-Jews, started with Lyndon Johnson in America. He was popularized Texas barbecue bar uh, briskets, uh, and he would do like presidential barbecues and stuff like that. And so they became really popular in America. And so once you become popular, you get more expensive. True, 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 true. That's cool. It, it's, it's actually interesting. We just touched upon it a little bit here, but there are very distinct differences in terms of what is considered Jewish food in Israel, which is bizarre to say because you figure, well, you're in Israel. All food is probably Jewish. No. <laughs> and then Jewish food in the diasporic experience. So any of us that made Aliyah, all three of us, probably were very, very surprised when we came to Israel for the first time that it's really hard to find bagels in Israel. It's really hard to find deli in Israel. 
you almost can't get it at all. And of course, there are reasons for that. It's not like Ashkenazi Jews from Poland and from from you know from Russia and, and Germany when it didn't come here, but there's a whole other context. Yeah, and and one of the I get like tourists often ask me, how come there's no you know chicken soup everywhere and how come there's no bagels and whatever and I, I mean there are bagels but not very good ones and but i explained to them that what we forget and i don't even know how much you guys think about it, i'm sure you've thought about it but like in america about 95 percent of the jews are of ashkenazic descent worldwide it's somewhere around i think 60 to 70 percent that are of ashkenazic descent in israel we're the minority only about 45 percent of the jews in israel are of ashkenazic descent so Get used to being a minority. Right. But, it's, but it goes further than that, in a way. No, but that's a big part of it, I'm saying. Right. So, like, why would you expect to find it everywhere when you're not mm. the majority population? I think, it, I think it touches to a part about what people's preconceived notions are about Jews when they come to Israel. And I, they keep expect, I keep having it's to okay. like sneeze. I also, I think I it's hit your, some magnes- like powdered magnesium at the, at the gym earlier, and it's like... It's just your COVID. Were you snorting magnesium? <laughs> not on purpose. He thought it was. We're good. Uh, we're good. Sorry. About this that. will be edited. You're, you're gonna have to be like muting me like every time. It's fine. Or if It'll you cover be... up when you, yeah. No, no uh, but 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 I, also like I I didn't sorry. grow. No, it's okay. I just I didn't grow up with. I grew up in a very small Jewish community in the states, so I didn't grow up with bagels. I didn't grow up with deli, and my mom's Iraqi. Poor and so, child. You know what? <laughs> I, I I've said it once. But he had Cuba though, so it's okay. I'll say yeah. it twenty times. Bagels are the most overrated food in the world. You just haven't had a good one. They. I've had. I went to Manhattan and had like the most famous Jewish kosher bagels. Uh, okay, it's a bagel. All right, nothing exciting here. I, I was I was I grew, in the I grew up the with fall. Kuba. I grew up with Majadra. I grew up with Memulaim. Like yeah. I grew up here as a child. And to beat, yeah. And then we'd come back to visit, and like for me, that's Jewish food. So that's why, like, I always like that's like a trigger thing for me is whenever people talk about Jewish food, I was like. Mm. The Jewish food I know is is not, you but know, it's bad. it's also an Israeli thing that like whenever I speak to Israelis about the stuff that I do and I yeah. talk about that I'm writing about Jewish food, I have to specifically say to them, and I don't mean Ashkenazi food. I mean all Jewish food because right, right. that became like if you go to a restaurant in Tel Aviv that serves Jewish food, it means Ashkenazi, it means food. Ashkenazi right. food, which is yeah. so bizarre and, all, and, really and bizarre. also really misleading and and it's I don't really understand how that came to be where that label is now. Like the Jews in the Jewish state are calling only one type of food yep. Jewish food. I don't. They're know not for really sure. thinking about like what is that? What what are we saying here? Yeah, I don't know for sure. I would guess. Ochel Yehudi. I would guess it might be. You ever? Uh, I'll I'll come at it from the other way. You ever have like an old an old like Ashkenazi man come to you and say you speak Jewish? But that's only in, in, in America. Right, but why do they say that? Because Yiddish. Yiddish exactly, Jewish. it's a translation of Yiddish. So maybe they were thinking this is Yiddish food, and how do you translate maybe. Yiddish food? Could be. Ocha Yudi. Could be. Makes sense. I'm guessing. I don't know. It it's just a guess. Sense. Yeah. Could the same, way, the same way they ask, do you speak Jewish? This is Yiddish food, so it's Jewish food. I'm guessing. Although, I, you know, I, I have thought about this in different contexts, and, you know, you mentioned earlier... Um, the stuff in in the Ashkenazi American context that came to be associated as Jewish food, like a lot of the deli stuff and the pickles, is just Eastern European food. I mean, uh, uh, locks and uh, I'll I'll let you correct yeah, yeah. me in a second. Yeah. Um, I I've always wondered in the other contexts of major and old Jewish communities. In, in my background, the Iraqi side, for example, I'm not sure that Muslim Iraqis are eating kubeh. You know, maybe they are. I don't know. Uh, they're certainly not eating cholent and tibet and things like that. 
um, because they don't have those limitations of, of food that has to be cooked. They should be. It's really good. It's amazing. <laughs> and, and in fact, I haven't had a good to eat in a while, and, and I think I might have to do that. Stuff will put you out for like a whole day. Oh, it's fantastic. You should tell people what to beat is because most Americans and most of your listeners probably so, don't even know what to beat is. Most of our, well, more than half our listeners are in America, I'd say North America. Um, a lot of our listeners are in Israel. And then, of course, uh, we, we like to mention it, but we're at like 140 different countries of listeners. And, and of course, we assume many of those are not Jewish. Um, the, the classic Shabbat food, as your book alludes to, is, is something called chul, which is essentially a stew that cooks all night. It's incredible. And there's different variations of it. Um, very hearty. Grains, very, meat, very potatoes. Hearty. Beans, meat, potatoes, different variations of it. There's the then that's the kind of the European style. There's the you know the Middle Eastern style. There's the North African, and then the Iraqis have their own version, which is stuffed chicken stuffed with meat and rice and tons of cardamom, and uh, and, and, then, and then cooked with rice surrounding. And it. Rice two surrounding kinds of rice, it. and it's it's unbelievable. I have an aunt; she's very ill now and very old. Sorry, and uh, but she's the one who always uh, made it for us. You know, so and, uh, I, I have yet to like the the old school way of doing it was to actually remove the chicken from its skin, mm. then take the meat off the bone, chop that up with the rice, and stick it back into the skin and restuff oh, the skin. Interesting. Okay. Very few people still do that. Now many will just stuff, stuff the cavity. It, yeah. I want to find some old Iraqi grandma here in Israel that, that still makes it the old-fashioned way because I, I've never seen it. I really want to see it done. I get very if you ups- find anybody, I get, I get very upset. I have to tell you, Joel, my wife is, is, is Iraqi, and her family is a very large Iraqi family, but the... the when the Safta passed away, large, uh, large family. They're not large people. <laughs> some of them are large I mean, just people. Be. Not my wife, but it's <laughs> some, when 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 she, the matriarch of the family when, when she passed away uh, several years ago, it's like all of that was lost. All of it. Sadly, I mean, it was. They didn't. She didn't. When, she when hadn't passed it on here, at all. When when they came here, I think that there was a lot of stuff which was very traditional. That what like her role in the house. She didn't work. It wasn't like uh, like yeah. today. She made food for all the children. Right. And the children then in their generation had jobs and they you know, lived more out of the house than she did. So they know how to make some things. Okay. I I still get Kuba and Shabbat from my from my mother in law, which is terrific. But the entire breadth of the whole kitchen, no, no. it's gone. It's I gone. mean, for and, and that's really sad. And I tell my wife, like, do you know how to make any of these things yourself? She goes, no, my mom makes the kuba for me. It comes on Saturdays. Like, we get it. So it's like, okay, so when she's gone, is that gone? Like, are we going to have to figure this out? And, and I, I mean, think that yeah. there's there should be a renewal. I yeah. think that there really should be, because it would I mean, be a like, shame th- if th- these th- things th- were lost. Thank God my mom is, is still alive and, and doing well and everything like that. But, like, I'm actually, because I've heard that story so many times so many people, I'm in the middle right now of, like, just as a side thing, just for my family, doing a little cookbook of her recipes just for our family to have. Right. It was like, the impetus was like my, my, my oldest niece got married over the summer. This was like the first of the next generation. I was like, I keep reading about these people that they find their mom's recipes after she died and stuff like that. I'm like, why wait? Yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm doing that now. And I think that also we're lucky in that, or, or you guys are lucky in that at least, and my wife too, like your parents are cooking traditional foods. At some at some kind, you're, you're shaking your head. Your mom's no, not, she's not really a traditional cook. So then, then your mom's a lot like my mom, where it's like I grew up in a house where we definitely would go to other people's houses she on cooks. holidays, and we could she, we she cooks. Yeah, no, my mom cooks too, but she cooks like other things, not right. not Jewish. So my mom does both. She right. would cook obviously traditional foods, and like especially on the holidays, like it's the same menu 
not you know because that's what my mom made. That's what she would right. say. Yeah. You know, no, my, but she would also make all kinds of yeah. stuff. You know, so yeah. My, my mom like she's been in America for so long, and so she adapted to the to my dad's palate into the American kitchen and American foods and briskets and turkeys and all that. She still does a little bit of like the. But I, I don't think she's really doing the hardcore, you know, Iraqi stuff like my aunts and uncles who are here are doing, uh, or were doing the ones that, that are still around. Um, I, I yeah, that, I gotta get get back to that because it's it's, you know, it's kind of been um, what's that word I'm looking for, like Cuba especially. It's kind of like I put it on a pedestal and, and yep. it's like no no I'm not gonna touch that idealized. You know, yeah, like a, like oh, that's that's uh, you yeah know. because you don't want to mess with it. You don't, don't want to come up with your with version it. because you don't. No. It's not something that you feel is open to variation. And uh, although the you know the best Cuba, the best Cubas I've ever had is uh, you, I'm sure you guys both know this Cuba Hamusta, which the traditional way is made not with ground meat inside, but with shredded, um, slow cooked braised uh, beef inside, and it's totally different. You remember where we had it for the first time? Is that the one that they call like a Siska? Siska, yeah. Uh, yeah. It's very Kurdish. Yeah. It's very Kurdish. Uh, Benny, uh, did you Where? used to come to um, Yona Nisim's back in D.C.? No. Oh, okay. That was, that was after. So they have it in Jerusalem at Mordor. They do, they do. They have it at a couple places in Jerusalem. Um, Azula has it, or Azura, yeah. whatever the place Azura, is called. Yeah. And um, uh, It's very good, though. Oh, my God. It's so, I want to I want to potentially blow your mind slightly please, on Cuba. Yes. So, okay, for those who don't know what Cuba is, because I'm sure some of our listeners don't know what Cuba is, Cuba is actually a class of foods that combine uh, usually meat with some type of a grain uh, packed around it, okay? Um, and so you have a classic one, uh, and also for those who are in America, you might know Syrian kibbeh. It's the same food, it's just pronounced differently. So you have a, a classic one that's like bulgur wheat on the outside with chopped meat on the inside that's fried. You also have in Israel, we have lots and lots of like soup-based kubas. So these are yeah. dumplings in the soups, like the hamusa that you're talking about. Yeah. There's other kinds. There's about 40 kinds in in in, in Syria and Kurdistan. We used to have like a big one called Kuba Medusa. It's like about that big. I don't know that one. But oh, I know Kuba yeah. Bilsinia. You know Kuba Bilsinia? Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. on a tray. It's a baked one. Mm -hmm. My point, though, is yeah. when you when you get the ones that are made in the soups, what is the outside of your Kuba made of? Bulgur. No. No? The, my oh, no. Semolina. Semolina. Yeah. My, but but my, my mother-in-law would say and her grandmother would say that it depended on where you came from and what's what's uh, level or or mamad. How do you say mamad? Class. Class you were in Iraq. Okay. So if you were upper class, the kuba, the 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 um, the, 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 the dumpling outside. itself, the outside would be uh, diamonds made. Yes, diamonds <laughs> and oil. Ground up diamonds. <laughs> diamonds and oil. No, it was uh, it was usually ground up chicken or turkey. Mixed with rice. Okay, well, in general, that's what you... No, right. so in general, even when you make good. regular kuba, you do mix some meat in. But what I was going to say is that... Some people would use only semolina. Right, so what I was going to say is, that's from what, what I've know. read, it was never semolina in Iraq. It was always rice flour, like you're talking about. Here in Israel, during the Tsena, there was no rice. And so that's when the, we the started depression, using semolina. The, the yeah, Tsena is like um, uh, the austerity period. Yeah. After, yeah. after the state was established, we absorbed a million new immigrants. We couldn't afford everything. So everything was, for about, I think, eight or ten years, yeah. an austerity period. Everything was rationed. There was no rice. And so they started to use semolina here. Oh, interesting. And all of the people now, they say, oh, yeah, that's the traditional, because that's what their grandma made but in not. the 50s. But yeah. in the 40s, their grandma made it out of rice. I never, I never thought about that. Yeah. That's interesting. So I'm going to try to make it out of rice. I'm gonna take it upon myself now to learn how to 
how to properly make kubas. And in answer to your question, by the way, about the foods that they eat, you know, yeah. that the non-Jews. Eat. So I've spoken a little bit about this. So I've been in touch uh, a little bit with uh, there's uh, an Iraqi American food scholar, not Jewish, uh, that I'm aware of, uh, <laughs> Nawal Nasrallah. I assume that she's not Jewish. I Probably not. But you never know. Uh, she's written lots of like books and stuff like that and translated medieval Arabic cookbooks. So I've interacted with her a few times about some stuff. And I asked her questions. So I asked her specifically <laughs> about Tabit. And she said that other Iraqis know what it is. And it is even in non-Jewish Iraqi cookbooks. Mm. But it's identified as a Jewish food. Interesting. Yeah. that Everyone Interesting. knows that that's a Jewish food. Yeah. You have, but, the, you have those. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead. But there are certainly foods that Iraqi Jews ate in Iraq that... Non-Jews, I don't know about Kuba, but certainly mm. other foods that other Iraqis ate as well. And like you mentioned in the intro, Gundi. Right. So oh. Gundi is Persian. That's one of the few so good. that I'm aware of, one of maybe two that I, that I can think of foods that are unique to the Persian Jewish community. Other, most of what Persian Jews eat is the same as what non-Jewish Persians eat. Right. Or Iranians. I, I think it's uh, your cologne, dude. Your cologne is like tripping off my... <laughs> It's the oud. I the oud, but it's like, and I can't open the window here because there's so much construction. I know he's outside. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's like tripping off my- Maybe uh, it's the dust from the construction rather than his be. cologne. Maybe it's your closet COVID. Maybe it's uh, so many things. I need to go get another round of tissues here. All right, we'll wait for it. <laughs> no, keep going, keep going. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so yeah, so Gundi is, is, is uh, a uniquely Jewish Persian food. And I've looked and I haven't found any- It's essentially a chicken matzo ball. Yeah, it's a, it's a Without it's, it's a meatball that goes into soup, usually like a a, a thin broth, um, that is a combination of either ground chicken or ground turkey meat mixed with chickpea flour that makes it really fluffy mm-hmm. and spices. It's delicious. I it's love very, it. Very very good. And easy right. to make. You're right. The Iranian kitchen does not, or the Persian Jewish kitchen does not have many uniquely Jewish aspects. It's just broadly just. Irani food. Yeah. And it's probably... Which in and of itself is a, a mixture of all different types of cultures, foods yeah. from the and Persian Empire. It's probably a testament to the length of Jewish history in Persia. That right. if you've been living there for whatever, you know, nearly 3,000 years, which they have, uh, no, 2,500 years, let's say 2,600 years, uh, you're going to be eating largely the same things because you've been as a community living with the same people. Yeah. So I want to go back to something we started talking about before, and I'm going to give you a theory of mine, and then I want to hear your opinion on it, because I, I may be accurate, and I may be off, a little bit off base. All right. Um, the way that modern Israelis hold the Ashkenazi kitchen is kind of in contempt in many ways, whereas it's looked at as not with flavor. It's you know bland. It's, uh, it's, just, it's not very good. They don't have any adventurous food. It's, it's sort of one of those things. And... I think that that has a lot to do with how Zionism in its you know early days of, of the existence of the state tried to sort of create this melting pot and strip people of their own unique diasporic identities way more than it does with what the actuality is of Ashkenazi food. Because as many of us know, and especially people living in, in the diaspora today, you know, they're are great things to eat and it's you know uh, to the point where it's like we were saying before where we're broader um, if we're talking about america american culture will take deli food and they they love it and it's like how could you say that that's not you know good food um and and here in israel we don't see that at all because i think that when people came with their deli food from europe in in the in the four, 30s 40s 50s and, and beyond they were sort of stripped of it and said no this is what we well, eat i don't here. think they came with it though i mean you tell us but i don't was there ever a time when like european deli was like a big thing here I mean, I would guess less so because we didn't have that many cows. Mm. <laughs> but 
first of all, I'll say, uh, in answer to your question, like for sure there is a certain contempt to the Ashkenazi food here. And I'll, the, the one example I like to give is, um, so, you know, Yana Gore? Yeah. So Yana Gore, who's uh, an Israeli food writer. So, Ashulchan. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's the magazine, yeah. So she has a, a book uh, that came out, I think it was her second or third book, that was called uh, Jewish Soul Food. And it's like Jewish recipes from all over the world. It's a cookbook. And in the in there, you know, each recipe says where it originates. And she'll be like, you know, this one is Algerian, and this one is Tunisian, and this is Moroccan. So she's really differentiating. And then Ashkenazi. As if Germans, Hungarians, right. and Russians eat the same thing. Right. Like, there's this <laughs> attitude that, like, if it's Ashkenazi, it's all the same. Right. Okay? Yeah. So even though she included I don't even think it was conscious. I think it was just a subconscious thing. But, like, I'm like, I don't mind. There is a difference between Algerian and Tunisian food. But there's also a huge difference between Russian food and Hungarian food. Right? Um, but, yeah. uh, and I do think, second of all, that you're right that there is a degree of pushback um, against the early state attempts of basically when they were trying to make a melting pot and, and Israelify people, they were really saying, be like us Europeans, because right. most of the early leaders were Ashkenazim. Mm -hmm. However, I don't think it's the only thing, because I don't think it's unique to Israel. You hear Americans all the time describing Ashkenazi food as bland, and it's because over the 20th century, Ashkenazi food did become bland. When you look at yep. reports in America in like the late 1800s, like, and I'm talking about reports by like, they had like these um, um, organizations from the government that would come to try to help new immigrants improve their their nutrition and stuff like that. They said that that, that Ashkenazi Jewish food was, was too spicy. <laughs> I'm not too joking. spicy. Yes, I'm not joking. Interesting. Okay? So, there is an attitude overall, and people often mock their own food also. And now in America, in the last, let's say, 20 years or so, there's been, not even 20 years, there's been a revival. Yeah, like a resurgence. Of the classic Ashkenazi things. You're, you're seeing schmaltz, and you're seeing more, you know, home pickling. And I don't know if you're familiar with the gefilteria. Um, yeah. Wait, so tell us about that. What, what did it's you just say? The what? The gefilteria. It's interesting. Oh, so there's these two, these two people cool. uh, in uh, New York. Um, uh, Liz Alpern and uh, wow, I know his name, and I'm it's escaping me right now at the moment. And I apologize to you for not remembering it, not remembering your name. Uh, but they they wrote a book, uh, called the Gefilteria, and they also have a, a um, a company, and they they sell like you know more gourmet gefilte fish, and they do workshops on Ashkenazi cooking. Uh, Jeff Yaskowitz, I think is his name. I feel terrible for forgetting I'm gonna, it. I'm gonna look, look, I'm gonna look it up while you, yeah, I'm pretty sure it's Jeff Yaskowitz. Um, but, uh, but they're like amongst those who are really, you know, pushing forward, uh, the, the revival of this, of this Jewish cuisine. You have people that are trying to, like, there was a book that came out a few years ago called Save the Deli. Um, well, so we, we had Chaim Davids on the show and who was doing yeah. like a Ashkenazi soul yeah, yeah, food revival great. here in Israel. Yeah, he's great. Uh, and, and him and also, uh, Hatch and Schmaltz, more Schmaltz. They're trying to, you know, bring a lot of stuff. So yeah. Jeff Yaskowitz. That's I was right. Good. Right. Jeff Yaskowitz and Liz and, Alpern. And Liz Alpern. Yeah. And and there's a third person. Yes. Oh, they're the only two that I'm familiar with. Jackie Lillenstein. I don't know how to pronounce okay. it. But anyway, so yeah, so so I think that there's some truth in what you say, but I don't think it's like a universal that it, that's the only thing. Cool. Yeah. And 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 good. I mean, rightfully so. It's, it would be bad. It would be just as equally you know equally bad if if those things were lost to to time. I made schmaltz for the first time a few weeks ago. So tell people that don't know what is schmaltz. Right. So um, obviously 
in every cuisine, you you there's many ways of cooking, but often you're going to need some sort of a, a fat to cook in if you want to fry anything. Um, and throughout history, all over the world, you use different fats. So in a place where olives are available, you might use olive oil. But right. like, for example, in most of the colder reaches of Europe, in, in the northern parts, I don't mean far north, but even in central and eastern Europe and et cetera. It was animal fats. Right. They, they, they had no olive oil and they had some seed-based oils. So like I was reading a book about medieval Polish cooking, uh, not specifically Jewish, and they, they, they did use poppy seed oil and hemp seed oil. Interesting. But mainly, but that was not their main thing. Most would use animal fats. And for most of the non-Jews, of course, it would be lard. It would be pig fat. Because that's sure most very available. available animal exactly, but Jews obviously wouldn't use that, and you're not going to use butter if you're cooking something with meat because Jews don't mix milk and meat. And butter's expensive. Um, it could be. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah, I'm okay. not sure about that, but that might be. But certainly, even if it's not, you're not going to use it for your meat products. Right. So Jews in Ashkenaz, which was originally the border territory of France and Germany, and then Ashkenaz Jews spread through Central and Eastern Europe, uh, began to use what they call schmaltz, which is rendered poultry fat. They might at times also use rendered beef fat, which is suet, but they would use largely rendered poultry fat. Beginning in France, it would, in Alsace area, it would primarily be goose fat uh, that was rendered. And then in Eastern Europe, that became a little less popular, the geese, and it was more duck or chicken fat. Sounds awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. The rendered Sounds so fat. good. <laughs> I have a blog post up right now, uh, I think from about two weeks ago, about uh, me uh, making schmaltz for the first time. What I, did think, you, I think I saw it. What did you do with the schmaltz after you made it for the first so, time? So uh, one thing I did with Just it- Don't say drink it. <laughs> <laughs> Take a shot. I'll tell you when I was a kid, not for that long because then my, you know, my dad had high cholesterol, so my mom stopped having schmaltz in the house. But uh, when I was a kid, I have memories that we would have like a container of schmaltz in our freezer, and on Friday night at, at Shabbat dinner, we would spread it on challah like really margarine. Good. Shut up! I swear. Oh my god! I yeah. mean, so good. I guess. I guess conceptually, it's no different than putting butter, butter or yeah, whatever. I was at someone's house. Oh my god! I was at someone's house for Shabbat, and they. They put mayonnaise on their challah. What are they, game? <laughs> like, like they take may mayonnaise. It's, it's just like the most Ashkenazi family, but they take mayonnaise. Mayonnaise on white bread? Hold on. Mayonnaise and schug. <laughs> and the, and they, they, that's what they like. These people spread it on their challah like. So I will sometimes mix schug in with tahina. Uh, that's fine. Yeah. But, but yeah. mayonnaise, mayonnaise, wow. And some, it wasn't even like the good mayonnaise. It was like, you know. They're, right. They're having identity issues. It was, wow. Uh, we need to check these people. I didn't know what to do with it. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. Um, so what did I use it for? I made it specifically because I was uh, preparing um, a, a Jewish version of an Alsatian dish uh, called shukrut garni. Uh, shukrut garni a la juive, which means, going back to what I was talking about before, Jewish, Jewish. style shukrut garni. Shukrut, shukrut garni is and maybe I'm mispronouncing it because I'm not French, uh, is uh, fresh sauerkraut with all kinds of uh, preserved, you know, uh, cured meats uh, in there, cooked together. Cooked. Delicious. Yeah. And and if you, uh, many times the Jewish version will actually be made, and this is what I did as a Shabbat stew, meaning an overnight cooking. You put it in on Friday and you eat it for Shabbat So lunch. cabbage and? So it had in it sauerkraut um, that you actually thoroughly rinse to get a lot of the salt out. So it's not a particularly salty sauerkraut, um, but it still has the, you know, a real sauerkraut is, is lactobacillic fermented, meaning it's fermented just from the salt. It's not with vinegar. Right. Right. So 
Um, it has that. It, I used about four different kinds of uh, preserved meats. I put in corned beef. I put in uh, some kind of sausages, different stuff. I don't remember. Also, goose I put in there, goose leg. Um, potatoes, uh, some carrots I put in. Sounds really good. Um, <laughs> wine. There's also a blog post about that. I uh, threw a mustard in there. Uh, you you could serve mustard. it with mustard. Yeah, you wouldn't put it in normally. You wouldn't cook it with it? I've never seen it that way. Oh, you put juniper berries in, though. Yeah, okay. And uh, and I got like uh, an Alsatian uh, wine to put in. You went out and find an Alsatian wine. I went to the, the, the liquor store. I went to find... <laughs> went to the Alsatian liquor store. Here no, I went, to, I went to the wine store down the block from me, and I went over to the non-Israeli wine section, because uh, I knew which type you want to... Uh, what is the... I forget which type it is. Uh, I forget the wine, but uh, and I went and I happened to see that there was one that was actually from Alsace. I'm like, I'll may as well use yeah, that. So one. this is this is the thing, though. You and I live in whatever you know random cities we live in. We have to go to the supermarket. Yeah. It's the source things, and that's hard because the supermarket has what they have, and what they don't, they don't. You live in Machneuda Market, literally yeah. in in the in the Shuk in Yerushalayim, which is like for those that don't know, it is the iconic Shuk in Israel. There's no better Shuk in Israel. The, the food market, the yeah. food market, and and uh, you know. If you've been to Barcelona, you could think of like Le Boqueria or something like that, where you have like just these, you know, amazing markets filled or with Borough Market in London. Right. Just yeah. a, a, I don't get a chance to use this word very often, so I'm excited to use it. A plethora of options. Uh, How about a, a plethora origin. of gastronomic delights. Thank you. <laughs> How about a myriad? Myriad. Mm, myriad. Yes. Uh, so, do you find that like, because if I lived in the Shuk, I would probably be like four hundred oh, pounds. First, I'd be, yes, I would be. I would be morbidly obese, but also would just be. I would never actually go shopping. I would just every day go down and get what I need for what I'm making that day, which is I, you know, probably how it should be because then you're eating fresh food all the time. That's what, that's exactly what I do. I I I, I refer to the shook as my refrigerator, <laughs> like all that's in my refrigerator is basically like dairy products and leftovers, because like why would I buy things in bulk? You know, I might, maybe I'll buy instead of like one cucumber, I'll buy two so I can have for tomorrow also. But like, I don't need to, to buy in bulk because it, I mean, I used to live even closer. I, I moved uh, back in August. I was one minute away from the shook. Now I'm about four minutes away from oh the my shook. God. I know, what it's a, far. It's far, yeah. yeah. totally. But like, it, but surprisingly, it actually makes a difference. Because back then it could be like, if I were in the middle of cooking and I needed a new ingredient, I could run out, buy it and be back without turning the stove off. I might not do that now. Because now it's four minutes each way, and now it becomes a, and yeah. So it's a good ten minutes. You also the benefit from being able to have a relationship with the people that work in the shuk, sure. Where they where they know you, and 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 you can be like, hey, uh, you know, what's good today? Yeah. What am I getting from you today? And just by walking around, you could get inspired to what you're going to cook that afternoon. I mean, a lot of chefs do that, in, right? Yeah, and like gourmet restaurants, they're like, oh, I'm going to go to the market and see what's fresh today, and I'll be inspired. And yeah, that's I mean, the special of the day. I'm know? not of that level, but I certainly do do that. You know, if I'm if I'm hosting a meal or something, instead of saying, oh. I want to make X. I'll go and I'll see what's in season right now. What's on what sale? I, I do that. By the way, yeah. I'll, I'll go. What's on sale? What's in season? What's yeah. uh, you know? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. What what inspires me? Absolutely. You know, I was, I was going to say earlier uh, that the whole Ashkenazi thing, how we just lump it all together, and it's probably not fair at all, um, because you know, parts of Europe certainly. You're talking about Ukraine, southern Ukraine. You're talking about uh, Romania, Hungary. Those are probably places that are warmer climates that had really varied agriculture, that had uh, much more influences of uh, Central Asia and the Middle East. Absolutely. And, and so I, I would imagine that their cooking is probably a lot more varied and complex than we than we give it credit for here. For in sure. Or the French kitchen. 
yeah, which well, is certainly, like right. the mother kitchen of, of, of or the German kitchen. Right. You know, uh, I learned. I heard that foie gras was a traditional Jewish food. So uh, yes and no. Like you're you're not off, uh, but not a hundred percent. Basically, goes back to the schmaltz I was talking about before. So uh, force feeding geese to fatten them up is something that was already done back by the Romans, and. In Alsa, evil people, <laughs> and and well, especially here in Israel, we, right. we like to think of them that way, right? And in Alsace, uh, which is eastern France, uh, where there was a, a, a the early Jewish community of Ashkenaz, um, the Jews there were the ones who specialized in fattening geese, and it is we have no way of knowing, but it's believed that it was Jews who came with the Romans uh, when the Romans conquered Gaul uh, that preserve this technique but they weren't doing it to make foie gras they were doing it so they could have schmaltz you know if you're gonna if you're gonna need to slaughter an animal to have to have cooking fat you want as much fat as you can get from there right then they happen to say okay so the liver gets fat and they would sell that really more to the to the french they might eat it and there is though there are those who will speculate there's this connection between like foie gras pate de foie gras and uh and chopped liver because there are many similarities there but the the dish that we know it as, like the pate de foie gras, was certainly invented by, uh, you know, French gastronomes, probably like royal chefs and stuff like that. But certainly the idea of what brought about a fatty liver um, that was then loved by these people was uh, was uh, a Jewish product. It was more of the byproduct. Oh. We weren't doing it for the liver. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Today, by the way, if you, if you are a person and you have a fatty liver, that is a problem. <laughs> and you should have that looked at. <laughs> well, so, well, it's a problem for the geese too, but they, unfortunately, they don't live that long. They don't. With it. They don't live they long don't, enough to deal with it. They don't have to deal with the, the yeah. repercussions of their fatty liver. Right. Well, actually, they do. <laughs> it's an indirect repercussion. Yes, it's an indirect, indirect repercussion. Um, this is going to be known as as the blow the nose podcast. Oh my! This is I've ne- <laughs> how this many never happened. We've had? This has never happened on the show. Never happened. Um, but you know, it's uh, something. It's, it's I, I, I honestly think that cologne is like triggering my. Um, I, I think that it's probably the COVID in your house. Maybe it's <laughs> maybe it's my deodorant since he probably wears that cologne and other other. He does, but also. it hasn't bothered me before. So maybe it's because I have a similar cologne also, and and uh, I'm going to blame me. <laughs> it's always a good place to start. I'm, 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 I'm taking myself. it. I'm taking it. My my old taking factor, one for the team. My olfactory senses are going uh, yeah. crazy here. Let me, let uh, me ask you because we're, we're we're talking about like food traditions that are great, but but sort of gone from this from this earth. Is there any like when we talk about a resurgence of these things in Israel today? I mean, we're not just talking about a resurgence of Ashkenazi food. There's also a all of the things that came from all the different diaspora communities were kind of homogenized for the Israeli palate, which is sort of a mixture of all these places given the types of uh, resources that were available in Israel. Like we were talking about semolina instead of rice or, or th- those sorts of things. Um, is there more of a... Are you seeing a, a resurgence in, in, like in the shuk in Jerusalem? Are you seeing... Are there places that people can go to to sort of try these sorts of foods that maybe... You know, if, if if you are looking for deli in Israel, is there somewhere that one could go to find artisanal versions of things? Is it so? Uh, not everything is in the shuk. So, for example, like you you mentioned Chaim David's, so that would be a place where you can get some of the of the of the classic deli yeah. meats. Or Schmaltz is a restaurant in Jerusalem that's not in the shuk, although Hatch, which is like the sister restaurant, the 
first one is in the shuk, but they're not doing the deli meats there. They're doing things like uh, they started with sausages uh, of different kinds and they do like uh, buffalo wings and stuff like that. Uh, American food. They brew, they have beer. As yeah, well. yeah, absolutely. Um, you, what you have seen uh, an uptick in with the big French alia that was, you know, from, I don't know, was that six years ago, seven years ago? Yeah. Uh, you got um, a number of uh, artisanal charcuterie producers. I saw that. Very yeah. expensive. Mm. Very expensive, but... Uh, Good stuff, but expensive. Because they're importing from France? No, or? no, a lot of them are made here. I mean, some of it might be imported. I don't really know, but some of it's probably produced here. Um, Heim Davids works with these guys also. Yeah. He's not making his own I think he makes some of his things and some of his things he buys. I, I think thought. he does his own turkey, but uh, yeah. I, I, recall, I recall him saying that he gets it from, I think, somebody French, you yeah. know, um, which makes sense. Yeah. Um, so specifically the deli meats, I, I would say, is not necessarily a place that you can go and do a tasting of that. You might get a little bit if you look for it. But yes, I mean, obviously, if you want to sample different foods from different cuisines, that's that's what I do when I do a shook tour is that like I always explain to people why we're doing this tour, because we get to have this window onto the culture of Jerusalem and thus the culture of the Jews, which is diversity inside the shook and in the area around it. I could show you foods from about 20 to 25 different countries of origin, all side by side. None of them seen as like weird or exotic. They're just food. And because we're mostly Jews and more or less keep kosher and sometimes marry each other, sometimes those foods actually blend together and create these true melting pot dishes. Um, like a simple example I talk about. So, um, shakshukalawach. Okay, you guys know what Malawach is. Well, uh, yeah, I went okay. there with you. Mal Malawach. Yeah. Oh, you went there with me? I forgot. Yeah. Oh, right, right. Yes, of course. Yeah, with uh, with the Bahrainis. Yeah. Um, so Malawach is a Yemenite uh, puff pastry, essentially. And shakshuka, which is a fresh tomato sauce and then eggs poached in it, originates in North Africa, in Tunisia most likely. Never in the history of Yemen did a shakshuka ever touch a Malawach, right? They never heard of it. It's from a different part of the world. But in Jerusalem, nobody bats an eye. Nobody goes, huh? Nobody goes, ew. Everyone's like, yeah, give me that because that's awesome. That sounds awesome. It's basically it's ridiculous. Awesome. Bread dipped in shakshuka. It's ridiculous. It good. is awesome. It's ridiculous. But good. that's an example of a fusion dish. And that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have all these different communities living side by side. Right. How did the Bahrainis experience the shuk? Um, <laughs> we, we made, <laughs> With difficulty. We made, we made the mistake of uh, bringing them in their traditional clothes. <laughs> and so they were mobbed like rock stars. Um, Seriously. And I don't think they got to truly enjoy the food tour. Right. We did it. We had to cut it short. And I'll say that I will say, because uh, I don't even think you know, that like even still to till today, I have people in the area that saw me with them. And it's like it literally just happened to me like last week. Some guy in a store, not even in the Shook, but like on Agrippa Street, this guy came up to me and said, uh, uh, where are the Saudis? And I go, the Saudis? What are you talking about? He's like, oh, I saw you with them. I was like, no, no, those were not Saudis. Do you think a Saudi Arabian was able to get into Israel? I said, those were Bahrainis. And yeah, he's like, oh, okay, fine. But yeah, so yeah. like, so people remember, they saw. Oh, it was, it was nuts. It was nuts. They yeah. were like rock stars. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, they were harassed by some of the, you know, East Jerusalem Palestinian workers. Correct. But but Although not all of them. Some of them no, also no. were, were so, positive. So, some of them were very friendly and came out with, with dishes for everyone to try. Um, yeah. Rock stars, mobbed like rock stars. He's yeah. not joking. It was insane. 
That's cool, actually. And, and these are just like normal people. So if, from, we, yeah. so if we dressed you up in a kandura and sent you to yes, the shuk. Yes, 100%. You know that back back when this whole started, there were like some Israeli Arab guys from the north who like rented some like Ferraris and put on <laughs> put on some uh, kanduras and, and like pretended to be Emirati. I did not hear yeah, yeah, that's I think awesome. I saw a video. And they were like, that's you know, hilarious. Like, was coming up to them and they were like, oh, we're, you know. Did they did they get anything free? I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> did, did they at least cover the cost of the car rental? <laughs> Sure I was I was scrolling last night on Instagram and and these story videos and there's all of these videos that are coming out of Dubai where there's this guy who comes out and he says you think money can't buy happiness oh yeah I saw <laughs> come to Dubai Habibi and then it's like a picture of the Burj Khalifa or some Ferrari or something like, I don't know <laughs> yeah so uh, but yeah but like there's foods from all over the world there and and not even all of them are represented in in Mahani. like there's not there's no Bukharan food in in Mahani Huda right now there used to be a place there's not right now so that's an example of another community of Jews that their food exists in Israel just not in the and, show. That, and that's an old community there's a Bukharan quarter yeah in yeah. Jerusalem you know that's one of the first uh new Jewish communities to like yeah, uh, it's early yeah and but it's uh it's closer to like the Masharim area right. yeah is there a lot of turnover in the in the shuk? Uh, yes and no. In other words, like there are some stands that have literally been the same owners, the same thing for fifty years, and then there's other things that opened a week ago and will be closed in a week. Especially in the last few years, because as it's grown in popularity and grown in in uh, you know there's a lot more eateries and things like that. So there's a certain group of people that have decided we're going to open something in the shook because I can make money there. Hmm. You know, it's kind of the Israeli attitude, I know better. And a lot of them have terrible ideas, unfortunately, and a lot of them don't really do their research, and a lot of them don't really think about are what's... They trying to, are, you, are you, I don't want to name names, but are you referring to people that are opening, like, stores or, 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 or stalls where they're I'm selling ingredients about, or more bars no, and restaurants? No, bars and restaurants I'm talking about, yeah, okay. mostly. mostly. With, with something special to offer or just, like, more of the same? Some of them are doing like, well, three other people are selling this and they're making money, so I'll be the fourth so, and I'll make money. Yeah, yeah. And other people, and I've also seen it in like stages, but like one of the last stages is like people are just like almost the opposite of that. They're like, I'm going to do something that nobody else has done, but like it's not a very good idea that nobody has an interest like in. like what? I don't want to, you know, badmouth yeah. anyone, but there's some pretty weird ideas. Like... I'll make one up that will be indicative sure, of it. Sure, like, sure, like, sure. like, uh, like um, we're gonna make um, uh, a pizza, but instead of bread, it's gonna be uh, pasta dough, and instead of cheese, it's gonna be a hamburger. <laughs> I'm just picking something stupid, but that kind of thing. They'll just put things together and say, like, oh, well, nobody else is doing it. There's a reason. Do you think anybody wants to eat that? Is the question. Yeah. You know, so. Well, so, so okay, but like, okay, but I'll play devil's advocate to that. And I'm actually, by the way, I'm, I'm so, pretty good at it where like if something opens, not 100%, but I can tell they're going to succeed or they're not going to succeed. Yeah. You, you should become like a consultant to people who want to open businesses in Machina That's not a good business because I happen to know that they won't hire me because they know better. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also parts of the shuk. I found this very interesting when I first started learning about the shuk, that there is like a shuk within the shuk. You there's mean like, like the Iraqi and the Georgian yeah, markets, yeah. Yeah, where it's like there's literally a small passage that you go through and all of a sudden you're in a place where it's a whole other juke and then there's a courtyard there and there's like a place where people are playing dominoes and, yeah. and sheshbit. And That's like, where Azura is. Yeah. So basically, <laughs> awesome. like yes and no. It's not that it's a shook within a shook. It's actually that like th we talk about the shook, but the shook was not built 
in one full fell swoop. It wasn't built all at once. It was built in like seven different sections over about 50 years, uh, 15 years. Two of those sections have those names. There's the Iraqi market, and where Azura is, that courtyard is technically outside the Shuk, but it's right outside the Shuk. Mm -hmm. And you have the, the Shuk Agruzini, the Georgian Shuk, which is in the middle. It's also got a courtyard there. But there's other ones. There's also a section that I, I always love to talk about. So, all right, down at the, for those who are familiar, and I'll describe it, like down at the southern end of the Shuk, close to Agrippa Street, there's a lot of restaurants there. That's where Jachman Bar is and fish and ships and things like that. It's a small area that has a funny name. It's called Shuk Halva'a Vechisachon, which means savings and loan market. <laughs> That's a funny name for a food market. How did it get the name? After the first, this was the third section built in 1931. After the first two sections at the other end of the Shuk, closer to Yafo, were built, everybody at the other end that was still selling out of like a little shack before they built the actual buildings, they were at a disadvantage. Because why are you going to shop in a dirty shack if you can go to a nice clean store? But they didn't have the money to build those nice buildings. So they went to a bank and they said, could you give us loans at lower interest rates so we can make a living while we're paying you back? Max said, no problem. You just have to name the Shook after us. That is the original city field. It's a bank with naming rights. That's awesome. Okay. And there's a sign <coughs> still up there that says, Shuk it says the year, it says like uh, that it was helped by the Vada ear of Yerushalayim. But people walk past it every day and don't even notice it. So in, it's not that it's a shook within a shook, it's that they're all, like the shook is actually separate sections that now has grown into one whole. It's, it's like we say Ashkenazi food, but it's actually you right. know, 20 different cuisines. Yeah. Before, before Machanid existed, were Jews living in the city buying primarily in Arab markets that were, you know, existed in the old city or? Yeah, so, so not just before the shook existed, in fact, the beginning of the shook, because the, the origins of the shuk and for those who don't know when we say shuk just means market if i say the shuk like most jerusalemites we're not talking about the the arab uh, shuk in the old city we're talking about machani huda uh, just as a side note so the shuk began uh in around the, the the late 1880s give or take maybe 1870s it's hard to say because there was no grand opening of machani huda market <laughs> um but basically there were arab villagers uh to the west uh, that would grow fruits and vegetables, carry them along Jaffa Street, Yaffa Street, and take them into uh, what's now the old city. Back then, it was just the city. Uh, and but there were two Jewish neighborhoods. One of them was called Beit Yaakov, and the other was called Machane Yehuda. And there's still neighborhoods there by those names. I mean, they're small neighborhoods. And at some point, some of those Arabs said, "What are we idiots? We're walking past all these people on our way to the city. Why not sell it to them right here?" And so where the shook is today was a big empty lot. And they just set up crates on the ground and sold their simple stuff. So that's really how the market began. So for the very beginning of it, it was all Arab merchants. There were no Jewish farmers in this area and you weren't bringing stuff in from out. So the shook was a completely uh, Arab market in the beginning. And still today, many of the owners are Arabs. And it's not all Jews who sell or shop in the shook. There's, there's Jews, there's Arabs, there's Catholic nuns, there's Greek Orthodox monks shopping there. Right. It's like this very, very like amalgam of, of all of the city, like a microcosm of the city going to Absolutely. this one place to shop. Absolutely. I have to ask you. Yeah. <clears throat> shuk, outside the shuk, but th let's think about that area. What are the top three, five, let's call them traditional ethnic places that you would recommend? And what are the top three or five 
new like fusiony experimental type places that everyone has to go to if they're in Jerusalem. All right. Well, first of all, I don't I don't believe in the concept of best or top anything. Okay. It's all personal. Second sure. of all, second of all, you gotta define your terms. What do you mean by traditional? But I'll just throw out a few names. Sure, sure, sure. I'm not gonna say they're the tops, but I'll say one thing that that's that's cool. Um <laughs> because there's a place that maybe you guys have been to um that is making something that's unique to Jerusalem. So don't let anybody tell you there's no such thing as an Israeli food or a Jewish Israeli food. It was invented by Jews in Jerusalem. Have you guys been to Ishtabach? Yeah. yeah. Okay. So Ishtabach the, the name is a pun because it sounds like the prayer Yishtabach, which means right. he is praised, God is praised. But Ishtabach means cook man. Um, and they make one main dish. They have a couple of other things, but the main dish they make is called Shamburak. Now, Shamburak was invented in Jerusalem by a member of the local Syrian Kurdish Jewish community. I was going to say, it sounds uh, Kurdish, Bukharan, maybe right. something like that. As a way of extending the leftovers from Shabbat, which, yeah. by the way, is also how knishes were invented. Sure, sure, sure. Okay, knishes are good. These are awesome. Okay, so it's a flat disc of bread dough, mashed potatoes on top of that, meat on top of that. you got about 10 different options of meat. Uh, some nice vegetable toppings, and then they close up the edges and stick in an oven. I would out. be so obese. If oh, I have you been to Ishtabach? <laughs> yeah, Ishtabach's amazing. I, I have to say, I love it. I, I don't go there that much because yeah. I don't want to be so obese. And, I, and in no way a, a knock on them. No, no. It's, very so it's, like, when I, it's like when I do my, my food tours, I always tell people, you're going to notice I don't eat on these tours. It's not because the food is bad. It's because the food is good. Right. You don't <laughs> want to be eating this all the time. I remember uh, I was on a, a tour a couple uh, – a couple of years ago with a group and and I think they just opened up I'm I'm, I'm drawing a blank but it's the, an ice cream place that sells ice cream sandwiches with like yeah. really good Cookie cookies cream. something like that yeah. and I looked at it and it was like this like 3 or 4 inch thick ice cream layer with two double chocolate fudge cookies and then like sprinkles and whipped cream and like they were just giving these these things out like it was a tasting day so it was like here take a I'm like how do you like if I lived here, and that was the place where I'm going to get ice cream, yeah, all the time. Right. like it's such cold ice cream, it's ice cream cookies. And next to it is like a place that's selling, you know, different variations of jachlun and malawach and different. Oh, no, variations right? The this is the place. worst episode for me to do right when I got back from the gym. Like I'm so hungry right now. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, so uh, yeah. So it, and by the way, just to finish up shamburak before I forget, because this is something you might not know. So. Uh, Shamburak, the name of the dish itself, is also plan words, not just Ishtabach. Do you guys know the origin of the name Shamburak? No. All right. Shamburak is spelled Shin Mem Vet Vav Resh Chaf, which also spells Shemivorach, that mm. is blessed because it is the food from Shabbat. Nice. So that's a really cool thing. So that's one thing I would say. It's really good. It's indigenous to Jerusalem. It's not that expensive. It costs about 45 shekels. It's uh, not cheap. No, but it's not that expensive. If you're getting a meat dish in that area, you're going to spend a lot more. Right. Than usually. Uh, so that's one I would say. Um, Azura is good, and it, but it's gotten very expensive. Um, yeah, it wasn't and, cheap. And it's like, the, like you know, they became very popular and very well known, and so they've raised price. But like, if you're willing to spend it, the oxtail soup there is so good, insane. It's, it's amazing, so good. really good. Um, so there's a, a nice place I like inside the Shuk uh, called Manu Bashuk, and that is a Lebanese restaurant. Uh, Manu is the owner. He's born in Lebanon. Then he moved to France. He went from the France of uh, from the Paris of the East to the Paris. Um, and his wife Sophie is Parisian. And uh, he makes basically his mom's recipes. I will say that uh, 
I don't know how long ago now, probably about two, three months ago, they changed. Now they're a fully vegetarian restaurant. I think they saw there were so many people doing meat in the show. They're like, let's try doing something different. Um, but they're still doing like real traditional uh, Lebanese Jewish food. So that's, I mean, not exclusively Jewish. I think some of it's sure. just Lebanese food. So I like that place a lot. So there's a few that are hot, like maybe traditional, but I don't know if you can call them traditional. Uh, fusion stuff. Um, you know, a lot of people like uh, Jacko's Street. I'm not the biggest fan. I don't think it's bad, but it doesn't blow me away. Like, it's good. What is it? Jacko Street is like... So, I'm sure you've heard of Machne Yehuda. Uh, it's a very famous restaurant in in in, in the Shuk, or near the Shuk, two blocks away. Uh, yeah. Like a celebrity it chef here in cool. Israel. It looks cool. Unfortunately, it's not kosher. Exactly. So, yeah, so it's not kosher. There. And so, Jacko Street <laughs> kind of, when it opened, was sort of like... I don't know if explicitly they've said this, but it was meant to be like a, a kosher machan Yehuda in, in, the, in, in the style. In the before COVID times, we would have a lot of uh, uh, groups do. Like, oh, I gotta go there. Dinners there. And, and yeah, I don't dislike it. I've just not been blown away by it. But I know many people that love it, so I would say that's a place that's okay. worth going to. Um, also, not fusion, um, but taking something kind of traditional and upscaling it is Hamotzi, which is uh, a former Master Chef winner. Avi uh, Levy. Yeah, um, I remember him. So he does, I believe it's Algerian, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, again, he makes kind of his mom's recipes and, uh, and uh, you know, upgrades them mm-hmm. a bit. And actually, almost every day you'll see his mom. She's got a little, a little uh, seat in the window where she will be hand-making things like Cuba and stuff like that. That's funny. Uh, not Cuba, I don't know. Yeah, maybe I don't she is. Maybe Cuba. Mafroom, mafro, maybe, I don't know. Yeah, maybe he, it's Mafroom. Yeah. But like you'll see her. I'm sure he... I, I hope he pays her. <laughs> um, but uh, but like she's this lovely woman. She's got like uh, colorful hair, like purple and stuff like that. And and every morning I see her, because I walk past her, every day you see her in the window. Like her desk faces the window, her table, right in the front. And she... He's making food, which is really cool. Uh, but yeah, no, so that's a that's a nice place. Um, Speak, speaking of Lebanese, I had um, I went to this cool Lebanese restaurant in Dubai. Had this never had this before here. They made you know you know the fried kubas that the Syrian Lebanese style kubas. Yeah, they did it with fish. Oh, interesting. Okay, it was so good. Mm. It was so light and fresh and but still bulgur on the outside. Bulgur. Interesting and, and fish, sea fish, fresh sea fish, chopped wow. up. Yeah. Oh my god, it was sounds amazing. good. What kind of seasonings? Do you remember? Similar, but fish. Interesting. I loved it, and uh, I've never seen that here. Yeah, I've never seen it or even heard of it. There is, there's one kind of Cuba I've heard of, uh, Cuba Naya. Yeah, Cuba Naya, like it's amazing. It's raw, raw meat. It's so awesome. Chopped with onion. And, and you've had it. It's good. And, yes, yeah, it's incredibly good. Yeah, so and that it's I've never very had. difficult to source in this country. Ah, yeah. It's, it's hard to find. Why? So the Cuba Bilsania is, is the easiest Why? one to make and it's delicious. Um, uh, I would assume it's difficult to find because it's raw beef and most people here have a you know, aversion to, to, to wanting to do that. Cuba Bilsania is, is Cuba is meat and trina and bulgur. And no, no, no. That's, 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 sinia just means oh, tray. Oh, uh, okay. So like, so like there are other dishes that are sinia, but like uh, Cuba Bilsania is basically... You you take a tray and you press down onto it like a layer of bulgur, yeah. then a layer of the chopped meat that filling, okay. and then another layer of bulgur, and it's baked in the oven. So it's super easy to make and yeah, it's delicious. Yeah, yeah. So I do I do something similar to that. I pulled from uh, an Otto Lange cookbook, um, his Jerusalem cookbook, where I'll do a layer of bulgur, a layer of meat, a layer of tina, and uh, and herbs. Okay, and, yeah. and I'll bake it. And, right, and then you serve it like little pies, and it's like yeah, uh, oh, really good, really really good. really good. Maybe I'll make that this. I was going to say, you're probably getting ideas from this. Getting so many ideas. <laughs> <laughs> so um, many ideas. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's cool. 
Now, the Shook suffered for a couple of years, I know, at least in terms of image from like over. I don't. I don't know how to say it because it's like over over toured over commercialized. I think that people forget. I think the concept was at least that people forget that it's an actual working neighborhood where people are trying to make a living and not a place where you're just doing culinary tours. Yeah. So, so how do you balance giving culinary tours to so sustainability? Uh, it's a very good question. I will say. Well, first of all, um, I'll say there's two things there because there's also people forget that. In addition to that, people talk about like. They look at these things that are different and new, and they say, oh, the Shook's not what it once was. And I tell them, what it once was isn't what it once was. <laughs> yeah. Like, there's only, I say to people, there's only two things that are constant in the Shook. One of them is change, and the other is people complaining about the change. <laughs> but, like, that's for real. But in terms of what you're saying, like, you're right, and it bothers me, too, as somebody who not only lives there and spends, I'm there almost every day, but also who makes a good portion of my living there. I feel that there are some, and there are many guides who are great, but there are some guides who maybe that's not what they do all the time, that that they don't have that sense of responsibility, whereas I do have a sense of responsibility to the Shook, and I recognize that that uh, I don't want to bite the hand that feeds me, literally. <laughs> uh, and so, like, for example, I will not bring large groups into the Shook. Others bring in, like, massive groups, and they bother everybody, including the people that work there. I won't do that. I don't ever bring groups to the Shook on Fridays because it's way too crowded there then. And I, I do see people doing it all the time. So I think that that if you're responsible as a guide, you learn how much you can do without, you know, hurting the Shook itself. I mean, we, we can remember before Corona, there was, there were, I mean, 2019 was this year in tourism in Israel where it was like the... The most busy, I think, that it's yeah, ever It was record-breaking. It was yeah. record-breaking yeah. year of tourism. And I can imagine that if you were the perspective of somebody who was, you know, an owner or an operator of a, of a uh, stall in the Zouk, that you might, you know, experience a very busy traffic, you know, foot traffic day. But, you know, it's conceivable that 20, 30% of anybody at any given, any given time were just travelers who were on a tour in the Zouk. Yeah. They weren't buying anything. They were just, you know, maybe having a, a taste of this or a well, taste. I of mean, that. most of them do buy some things, but it's also but they're, they're not buying, you know, they're meat, not buying they're, produce they're, and meat yeah. exactly. It's it, it is a problem, um, and and I think that uh, that those of us who who bring groups need to be aware of that issue and think about ways to mitigate it. Um, and part of it is just at the very least not preventing them from doing the business they were doing already with yeah. other people, not blocking their stands, not, uh, you know, not, <coughs> not, not blocking the paths so that people can get through and things like that. Um, not using, you know, a loudspeaker that disturbs everybody around you. Um, there are those who do it. There are plenty who don't. Uh, and, and, and I respect them for that. But unfortunately there are some, like there was a, a time about, I think it was about, a month and a half ago. It was probably during when we were reclosed the airport because it was Israeli groups. It was at the end of December when a lot of the Israeli companies do like a Yom Kef, meaning like, you know, like a, 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 like a fun, fun day. day. Yeah, employee fun day. And <clears throat> in this one day, obviously it came from some tour operator because it was all on the same day. There was about 10 different buses, at least, of groups that were 30, 40 people. Oh my God. And the vendors were getting really <laughs> upset, and they were right to. And I was upset, by it, and I wasn't even working. That I was just wandering around. And it, it was bothering me because there, there's, there's just not a. It was clearly somebody 
So whoever booked this didn't know what the shook is like, or didn't think about what the shook, or like. didn't care. Yeah, and, and no, and I will say I don't think most of the of the of the tourists and the tour operators like yourself and, and things like that. I don't think that most of them uh, would act this way, but there are going to be some of them like that. And well, look, and there's there's a, I'll, I'll just say remember. And sometimes you have to push back. You know, like <laughs> like I've had I've had companies ask me for that, and not just pri- private people will ask me. And I say no, I don't do it on Fridays. Yeah. But there are other times when I'll get an itinerary and I'll say, look, can we change this to another day? Yeah, and I think that there's a matter of professionalism that's entailed when you're the tour operator and you're looking how to plan that experience. So, for example, I don't know. You know what? With the example you just mentioned of the of the ten buses that were there, um, you're saying that they were all from the same company. They sent ten buses at one time. If that's if that my was the impression, case, I if don't that know. was the case, that's bad planning because then you're not going to you know you're not going to create a quality experience for the people in the market. And I, I, I'm not even I, talking. I, about right, the I'm not saying that they that they all showed up literally at the same time, but even one of them right. is bad to have a, a group that size. It's and yeah, it's over the course yeah. of let's say five hours. There were probably ten yeah. buses for least. for people listening on the outside. I mean, this is this is why you need to work with people that are that are actually professional in, in their approach and the way that they handle this. Because it's not just a matter of building a nice itinerary; it's also knowing what is the appropriate day to be there. Don't go there on a Friday if right. you're you know if you if you can't if you can avoid it, don't do it. If you're trying to have a good you know travel experience in the shuk, yeah, and, I mean, and, and you don't want to go with a large group. Right? There's nothing wrong with going to the shuk on a Friday as long as you're doing it on your own. You know what you're doing. Um, and you know what you're getting in for. Like, if people ask me to guide them there, I will say, I don't do it on Friday uh, because it's way too crowded. It's not going to be a good tour experience for you, and right. it's not going to be fair to the people who work and shop in the Shook. Exactly. Exactly. Do you do, you do any um, foodie stuff outside of the Shook? Do you do other parts of the country? Do you do culinary tours of Israel in general? So uh, I don't do formally. I might make individual stops, but... That was mainly logistics. I started to, I had hopes to do those sorts of things. And when I would meet various people that have some some sort of a food thing somewhere, most of them said, like, financially it wasn't worth it for them unless they had, like, a big group coming, 20 people, let's say. Yeah, that's true. And I usually work with small groups, which means they can't afford to spend what these people want for 20 people. So nothing against them. I understand why they do it. But, like, logistically, I didn't have that option. So... I might have a general tour that I'm doing because I, I don't only do food tours. I'm a, I'm a tour guide in general. Oh, okay. uh, and, and I might you know, have one stop where you know, we're doing something with this or with that or with the other, but I, I personally don't. There are, there are companies that do, and you know, if somebody wants it, I might send people uh, to one of those companies. But yeah, so, so I don't do formal food tours elsewhere. Uh, the best I've done was once I had, uh, it was a, a four-hour tour from Jerusalem out and back uh, where it was uh, just an alcohol tour. <laughs> we went to a brewery. We went to a cider house uh, and distillery, and we went to a winery and had lunch. And, and, then, and then they went to sleep. That sounds good. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds good. It was a lot of fun. What What are some of the hidden gems around Israel in, in you know, food gems? And, and Benny and I talk about this all the time, but... Uh, Food gems, alcohol, like gems, the hidden ones, not like the, like, what are some things that people, uh, people should be aware of, people should make uh, trips to go see, like things that are really, really So there was, there was this one restaurant, it's like my favorite place, but they don't <laughs> exist anymore. Did you guys ever go to Hamakomba Sedra in Ilania? 
I, I know the place. It I was amazing. Unfortunately, they're, they're not open anymore. Because of COVID or just? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. But it was it was really good. It was in this historic building. It was like, they had really fresh, good food. Mm. Um, I have not yet been to Gilly's, but everyone says that's awesome. Heard about it. I, that's, I would, that's up in the, for those who don't know, it's up in the southern part of the Golan Heights. Yeah. And they have like, like they raise their own cows. They, they raise and, and slaughter. I, and, I would just say to answer this. Everything. To answer this from my perspective, it's not necessarily a matter of the specifics of where the gems are. It's, it's that if you're coming from abroad and you're, you're choosing or trying to figure out a destination that you could go to really experience and enjoy um, things that have to do with food or culinary experiences or, or alcohol or things like that, you know, square mile, bang for your buck, you're not going to find many destinations that are similar to Israel. You know, in, and you and I can remember going back, you know, you know, 15, 20 years and you went to Israel, there wasn't such an awareness of like artisanal food. No, the, the foodie Israel. culture wasn't here yet. Wasn't here. There's been it, um, but in the past, a, But in the past, yeah. you know, in the past t- 10 years or so, it's it's arrived and, and in a big way and and you could literally travel and then we do. I mean, you have culinary tours that come here just for that, and they travel the breadth and the width of the country just visiting places that are producers, doing cooking workshops, learning how to make things, doing tastings, whether it's wine, beer, you know, yep. distilleries that do whiskeys and, and things like that. I think a lot of that comes from uh, the wine industry. Yeah. Like the wine industry was the first that yeah. back in the, you know, in the, in the 90s when our wine industry began to explode after the Golan Heights winery opened, you know, there used to be like five wineries in this country. And they were all more bad. or less. Yeah. yeah. And they were all pretty not, not very good. And then the Golan Heights winery started the quality wine revolution in this country. And now, what is it? 30 or 40 years later, we have about 350 wineries in a country the size of New Jersey. Producing fantastic wines. And that's what I say. Many of them are awesome. But what happens in many countries when a wine industry hits a certain level of quality is it raises the level of of culinary awareness and food in general. So you get artisanal breads and artisanal cheeses and then the craft beer industry. And now we have distilleries and all this stuff. I think a lot of that grows out of the, the growth of the wine industry because it, it sophisticates your palate. It makes sense. And and, and yeah. it came at about a time also, the late 90s and then into the 2000s when uh, a lot of people started making more money here and can afford that stuff. And, yeah. and uh, when, we, when, we, uh, when we had finished emerging from our hyperinflation and, right. and yeah. Now we'll get back into hyperinflation. It'll be fun. Oh, good. Yeah, good times. <laughs> no, but like, you know, the people who work in high tech and, and all that stuff, you know, it's like, okay, you know, I'll spend that extra money for, and, and, and you know, thank God, I'm in a place where I can do that too. And I can say, I'll spend that extra money to get a really good artisanal bread, like a, yeah. or a good cheese or a good this or a good that or whatever. Um, and there's some fantastic, some fantastic places around that are doing it. You know, something that bothers me and I always tell Benny this is that, you know, in, in Israel, I insist on keeping kosher. Um, abroad, I'll eat vegetarian. I don't eat meat. Abroad, I'll eat vegetarian and fish. In Israel, I insist on in eating at kosher places. Um, and, Sometimes it's like a lot of these artisanal places are not kosher. So if they tell me, yeah, we're kosher, we just don't have a tuda because, you know, we don't like the rabbanu. Okay, I'll fine. I'll go there. But like, you know, some places are just flat out not kosher. And it pains me in, in Israel, in the Jewish state, that like it's really hard to find this. Like in Tel Aviv, it's hard to find kosher. As a non-kosher. It's not, it's not hard anymore. It used to be. I remember like before I moved here, like back in like, let's say in 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 the early 2000s or, or late 90s, let's say. It would be hard to find kosher food in Tel Aviv. I'm not saying you couldn't, but you'd have to. You could walk blocks. It's not like that anymore. There's plenty there, but I'm not talking about falafel and pizza. I'm talking about I like understand. You know, if you want like a proper nice culinary experience, I think still there's like five, ten. You know, 
No. No? No, there's more than that. But I, but I will say, I actually have not that perspective. And I also, I keep kosher here. <laughs> I keep kosher in general and I keep kosher here. Uh, and so I'm not eating at these places. But it doesn't pain me because I want this to be a place that anyone who wants to be here feels comfortable. And if there are people, Jews, who want to live here and don't want to keep kosher, I want them to be happy so that they stay here. No, I know. I'm just talking from a selfish perspective. Okay. <laughs> no, I say that. And, and I'll tell them straight up, you know, they'll be like, oh, you know, like, because I'll be talking to them like, oh, I'll be like, it sounds delicious. I'm sorry I can't eat in your restaurant. Yeah, yeah I know. I know. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Um, but uh, but I'm happy that those places are, are around. I want them around. I want places open on Shabbat. Um, and I'm not going to them, but I want them yeah. there because I want everybody to have a, a comfortable I, I, experience. I wish there was a middle. I'm smiling now. I know. I know you are. <laughs> I'm gloating. I know you are. We have this argument all the time because I don't keep kosher, and I'm, right. I'm happy that there's all these options because I, I enjoy yeah, them. I'm, I'm and fine. it doesn't pain me. I'm a live and let live person for sure, and, and that's fine, and I don't want to take away. You've come across as a real fundamentalist, I have to say. <laughs> Joking. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, I wish. I wish there was this like middle ground, um, and, and I feel like if if bureaucratically or halakhically, and I'm I'm an, I'm not an expert on halacha at all uh, on Jewish law, but um, I wish there was a middle ground for restaurants to be like, okay, we're, we're kosher, but we're going to be open on Shabbat, and. And for the for the rabbinate to be able to be like, okay, we're going to recognize that in some way, right? And, and I wish there was that grab because I feel like a lot of restaurants, you know, there's some places that are like, no, we want to cook this, you know, the meat and butter and serve cheeseburgers and bacon. But there's a lot of places that don't. So there have been a few places that have obviously not underneath the auspices of the rabbinate uh, of the rabbinate uh, that have done that. I know, like in Jerusalem, there's places that'll do that, and you can pay in advance and and things like yeah. that. And I don't know all of the logistics, but there is an attempt by some to do. I mean, look, we have hotels that are serving exactly. Food. Yeah. So there is an attempt by some to do this. And frankly, you know, in in Europe, there it, you read about plenty of you know kosher restaurants that were open on Shabbat. Yeah, I mean, uh, when I've traveled to, I've traveled uh, a little bit here and there, and I've 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 been to restaurants that do that, right? And they're they're not cooking on Shabbat. I was I was uh, I mean, this is understandable how it works, but I was I was just in New York, uh, back in the fall, and uh, somebody mentioned to me this one restaurant to go to. It's a vegetarian restaurant, and they recommend, but it's it has some certification. I don't know, remember from whom. And I look at their their website, and I see that they're open on Shabbat. And I asked them about it. And they're like, "Oh yeah, we're we're owned by non-Jews and yeah. and uh, whatever." So I'm sure there are many. There are probably uh, some certification agencies that wouldn't certify them. Right. But in America, where you don't have a monopoly, exactly. I, th I think that w there, there's right. a restaurant. Uh, my wife's family's from Omaha, Nebraska, small Jewish community. There's one kosher restaurant. It's a bagel place, and it has a hekshar, and it's open on Shabbat. And so I kind of looked into this. How, how does this work? And a the, the owners are not Jewish, and b most of the clientele is also not Jewish. Okay, and so if you have that combination, which is really interesting, actually, for them, the non-Jewish owners, like what inspired them to open, or, or maybe, maybe the owner, in Omaha, or maybe they have some kind of mechanism where one of the owners is and one of the owners isn't. But I, I if I recall, if I recall, and I think I remember talking to the Orthodox rabbi at some point, um, is you have to have that most of the clientele are, are not Jewish, and and so you're. Yeah, and and the workers, of course, on Shabbat. I wonder if you know. could do like a uh, a workaround where you could, like, kind of like a shemitah thing, where you could be like, all right, on Shabbat, the restaurant is going to be owned by non-Jews. <laughs> I sell on it to one someone day of the week. Every every Thursday, every I sell it to someone. You're else. wondering, but this is exactly so. So one of my uh, 
lectures that I've given is about the history of Jews and alcohol. Okay. Which is fascinating and way deeper than you probably imagine. All right. But just one thing is that um, in Poland, uh, through like from the late 1700s through, let's say, the mid, mid to late 1800s, even earlier than that, I'm sorry, it started earlier, the entire alcohol industry was essentially a Jewish monopoly. Really? All the taverns were owned by Jews and all that. But one of the things they did was, yes, that's exactly what they did. They would, they would, they would sell the, the tavern to a non-Jew for Shabbat because they had to stay open on Shabbat so that the noble who they were leasing it from essentially would be able to come there if he wanted and that they could sell stuff to the peasants on Shabbat. But like, absolutely, this is what they did. They would they would do this, and it grew out of not so much of that, but it grew out of like Pesach, like selling your chametz. Yeah, I think we should embrace this. Look, this I mean, the, the world the world of halacha um, used to be and can be really really creative to solve real world needs when it wants to be, and and unfortunately here in Israel it's not. Um, Monopolies, man. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and uh, it's a shame. It's a shame for, because then you get a dichotomy where people are like, okay, then I'm just not going to follow it because it's not bending yeah. and adapting and being realistic for my life. And you had, you know, of course, uh, the whole modernity revolution that just a lot of people just stopped following religious law in general. But, right. but, but you know, when it stops adapting to you and your needs, then, and, and now that you have an alternative called the secular state... Then you can say, okay, I don't need it. I can, you know, find a different authority. I don't need the religious authority anymore for my life, and it's a shame. It's a shame because I think there could be so many, um, there there could be so many workable solutions from within a religious law and a tradition framework for these problems uh, that that just aren't being explored. I, I would also add to that that if it was a more accessible inviting system i think more people would be open sure. to exploring their judaism in this country and, and i'll say that it at least it seems that we're seeing the very very first steps uh towards that uh over the last uh you know six months or eight months since the new government has come in that there are attempts at you know reducing the monopoly power in terms yeah. of kashrut and things like that and it remains to be seen how long that lasts how much progress they make but at least there's at least attempts. There's right attempts. Now. It's a long, you know. It's, it's a long road to it walk. It is, and, and it's a question of how long will, will the ultra orthodox not be in control of those ministries anymore? Right. Um, and and it's it's all part of it, um, because abroad you have, you have a, a market option. You know, uh, uh, who is it? Um, you familiar with open orthodoxy? Uh, the concept. The concept of it's just like a movement. It's like a Jewish movement of. Uh, People who, who definitely consider themselves orthodox, but who are really bending the rules and, and on a lot of issues, including egalitarianism and this. And and uh, I read, I mean, last year, a couple of years ago, uh, one of the leading rabbis in the movement was going around to vegan restaurants in, I think, in the D.C. area where he lives and, and working with them to make them kosher. Because it's vegan. It's, it's really easy to do. Some of them are Jewish, some of them are not. And, okay, here's, you know, another 20 restaurants that can be kosher, like, very easily. Yeah. Uh, because they're not doing anything, you know, animal-based anyway. So y- y- there's got to be more of that creativity uh, to make it to make it relevant. To your point, um, th- that's one of one of the shames of of Jewish life in Israel is that um, it, it it just didn't, you know, it stopped trying to make that effort to make it accessible to more and more people, and and just made it harder and harder. Because uh, when we started the state, it was established with this mentality of religious status quo that these issues will be determined later 
And yeah, that was never the case. Instead, they were instead it got ingrained. J- just like in the just like in the shook, that concept that it never changes, but it always changes. It's same thing with this like status quo in religious life. It's actually always changed. Yes and no. I mean, like what happened is it just got entrenched. Yeah, but I mean the 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 Haredim of today are not the Haredim of sixty seventy years for ago. Sure, for They're, sure, for sure. That actually started with Begin. Well, some of the old ones are. Right? <laughs> <laughs> the, the Haredi world today is much more. Uh, oh, yeah, much more stringent than 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 yeah. the one of 50, 60, 70 years ago. Joel, I want to be cognizant of your time. Uh, let's just say. Um, I do another five minutes if you another want. Another five minutes. This, yeah, this, yeah. this has been fascinating. I want to just get you. Since you're writing a book on Cholent, I have to ask. We're coming up to the weekend. Mm. It's going to mm. be Shabbat. What type of Cholent is your favorite? And in all of your research, I think that people know of Cholent. They know Hamin. But what are some other ones which people should get into? All right, so I, I, I guess I need to start first by just saying a little bit about the book. And I will say, by the way, that uh, I'm about to launch a website specific for the book called chulentbook.com. So you Sounds can good. go and check that out. Uh, it's not launched yet, but it will be probably within the next week or two, hopefully. Um, uh, but um, in general, what I will say is that every Jewish community, more or less every Jewish community around the world, has some version of... The generic term I use isn't cholent, even though that's the name of the book. I use the term Shabbat stew, okay? Because I don't want to underscore the Ashkenormativity yeah. uh, and just say it's all cholents. By the way, it's actually really interesting, just as a side note. So because America is so dominantly Ashkenazic, cholent is the one that's known, and everyone just refers to them as all as cholents. And in Israel, for example, the more common generic term would be chamin, even if you're talking about an Ashkenazi one. I right. think it's also a Talmudic term, if I'm not mistaken. For sure. But there's, it's actually, you probably haven't seen this, and I've never tried it, and I won't, but there's actually a canned cholent in the supermarket here. I've seen saw. it. I've seen it. And what it says, it, sa- it says cholent, but it also calls it chamin. And Sherry Ansky, who wrote the first book, uh, a cookbook about all these different uh, uh, Shabbat stews, in Hebrew, it's called uh, chamin, and in the English copyright page, it says cholent. Interesting. I'm, I'm not surprised. But anyway. Chamin is generic. I mean, yeah, yeah. But, but yes and no, because it did, be, yeah, whatever, it's not important. But the point <laughs> is that each one has their own, okay? Uh, so of all those Shabbat stews, what I do, therefore, is since I say that they're all versions of the same, the book is essentially tracing our routes of migration through the diaspora via the changes in this stew. I like it. So that's the idea of it. Now, um... We also need to realize that it's flexible and it's open to interpretation. You can do whatever you want. People are always like, oh, can I do this? Sure, try it. See what happens. You know? <laughs> can I just make chili? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. If it cooks all night. I made night, chili last week. If it cooks awesome. all night. Super yeah. Bowl. You should have yeah. called me. I have some. <laughs> Bring it up. <laughs> no, so um, I, I don't have a favorite because I'm always trying new ones. I like, I mean... I, I used to be a, a, a real traditionalist where I would just make like the standard Ashkenazi chillant as you described before. Basically, that's beef, potatoes, barley, beans, onions with, you know, some spices, you know, salt, pepper, maybe some other things. That's the, kind of the classic. Uh, classic Ashkenazi, Eastern European Ashkenazi chillant. Um, but like, I'll try different ones. So like, for example, Hungarian chillant. No potatoes in it. It's called sholet. No potatoes at all. Lots of paprika. Lots of paprika, lots of garlic. Usually smoked meat in there. Yeah. Often smoked goose. Uh, okay. I think I, think I might be having that on Shabbat. Sometimes there might be some tomato in there. It's really good. Sometimes they might put rice. Um, so that's an example of one difference. My, my good friend is a um, uh, 
immigrant from Hungary. And he was a chef, also a professional chef. And uh, I've had his Hungarian cholin more than a few times, and he put smoked goose in and it. And it's also That's more awesome. liquidy. Yeah, and it's... A lot of beans. It's unbelievable. A lot of beans, no potatoes. It's yeah. out of this world good. <laughs> and then you'll have something like uh, Osavo, which is Bukharin, which is rice, uh, at different kinds of meat. Some will make it with beef, some with lamb, maybe even some with chicken. But... One of the, I'd say, hallmarks of the Osavo is that it's got a, a sort of a, a slightly sour taste to it. You'll use like green apples grated up in there. Ooh. Sometimes they'll put prunes in there. Interesting. Uh, sometimes they'll put sumac in. So you get this sort of sweet, sour aspect. Liquidy or dry? Fairly, fairly thick because it's rice. Yeah. You know? Um, so that's a really good one too, but it's a different thing. It's a different thing. And, and, I gave the I gave my talk about uh, the Shabbat stews when I was in LA in the fall, and uh, I did it on a Saturday night. It was sort of a more informal one, so I actually prepared two different ones. And one of the ones that I made, it was a big hit, uh, was uh, one that came from the Iraqi community of India. Okay, um, and it wasn't a tabit, although they also make a tabit, but it was one that had that was chicken and rice, but had some really nice flavorings. And I got this from uh, from a woman in England, in London. Um, but it's served with this delicious, like, chutney, like a cilantro chutney that goes mm. with it. So good. So good. And because you get this fresh chutney with this, That's like, awesome. yeah, and lots of aromatic spices. So, so the idea of the website when I launched it is that there's going to be lots of recipes on there and people will be able to upload their own as well. That's cool. That's so really cool. Like when it launches, when it launches, you guys have to up your, upload your recipes we as well. We will. We will. Does chili count as chillant? Sure. If you overnight cook it. Yeah. Okay. That's what I did last week. Why not? Made chili, threw it on the plata. Awesome. Let it cook all night. So if people want to find you, how can they get a hold of you and uh, yeah, so, uh, catch up on what's going on? Yeah, thanks. Uh, so email address uh, that's easy to remember also is jewishfoodbook at gmail.com. Um, I have my, my blog uh, that I write about Jewish food history is tasteofjew.com uh, and soon also cholentbook.com. Uh, and I'm happy to answer questions. Actually, I like questions because it also gives me th topics from my blog. <laughs> right. um, so yeah, so send and, questions and follow. And, and for that. anybody who's listening, uh, Joel does uh, great uh, online uh, lectures he can do for a community. If, you, and, if you're listening and, and you're in a rabbi. Lectures. What's that? And in-person lectures. And in-person lectures and virtual tours and all kinds of stuff. So yeah. thank you for that. And yeah, I'm obviously I'm on, you know, I'm on Instagram, fun Joel Haber. Twitter, I don't use much, but Fungal on there, and uh, yeah, I can easily be found. Awesome. Good times. All right, so I got to go eat something now. Yeah, right. You. This is uh, this is, has to happen. I'll warm up some uh, chili for you. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. Thank you guys so much. Great thank, being thanks here. Thanks for joining us on the show. My I, pleasure. I apologize to you and all the listeners for the constant nose blowing. I this literally has never happened in a year and a half of. Uh, That's why I think it's show. me, and not him. <laughs> I'm gonna go get a PCR test now. <laughs> <laughs> Take right, care, well, everyone. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye. Juanced is a joint creation of Benny Shoulder and Dan Pfefferman. Make sure to subscribe on whatever platform you get your podcasts. For more information and show notes about this and previous episodes, visit us at juanced.com and feel free to hit us with your comments and suggestions. Thank you for tuning in and we'll see you back for the next episode of Juanced. <laughs>